As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and our first Champions League review of 21-22. It was a match day in which defending was as absent as Jurgen Klopp's glasses. I miss those little guys. Shakhtar didn't shoot the sheriff or the deputy. Real Madrid committed a robbery at the San Siro and Bayern Munich played in summer-friendly mode for their leisurely stroll around the Camp Nou. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who's never scored a hat-trick and still lost by six goals, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, I appreciate the implication that I have scored a hat trick uh, and ideally in the Champions League. So, yeah, I'll take that. And you are correct. I have never done that. But I also appreciate that you went has never as opposed to never. There's still time, Ryan. There's still time. There is still time. Also made a presumption that that has never that exact scenario hasn't happened to you, Taylor. So I'm glad that hasn't befallen you because it's befallen a certain other person this week, which we shall discuss later. We shall. We shall. And, you know, maybe maybe uh, if they continue to underperform, Leipzig will need some uh, new goal scorers. So maybe there's still time, Ryan. Maybe indeed. Also here with us, Taylor, is a man whose defence of Scottish cuisine is much better than any defence at the Etihad on Wednesday, Graham Ruffin. <laughs> Hello, Ryan. Uh, yes, I will take that as compliment, although I don't think it is, it's very difficult to put up a better defence than there was put up at the Etihad last night. It wasn't great scenes for Jesse Marsh and RB Leipzig, but some positives, and I think we'll probably come on to those later in the pod. Indeed, I realised I was trying to compliment you, Graham, but I was damning you with faint praise. Yes, I did notice that, yep. I just decided to <laughs> ignore it and move on. Yeah, if anything, Graham's quote-unquote defence of Scottish cuisine is pretty reminiscent of the defending we saw the other night, which was more of like, yeah, sure, whatever you want to do, I don't really mind. <laughs> that is true, except when it comes to deep-fried pizza and of iron course. brew. <laughs> of course. I like deep. Uh, fried pizza vibes more than I like uh, it had defending vibes lately but that's another story also here is a man who regards the latest Liverpool versus Milan as the best in living memory because it's his only one in his living memory Joe Lowry <laughs> I remain jealous of your youth oh Ryan you you did me dirty but also complimented me sort of for something I can't control in that I am still <laughs> somewhat young um it was it was one of the best Liverpool AC Milan games I've ever seen I'll put it that way it was certainly in the top three for me in the Champions League, <laughs> I would say. Um, 108 days have passed, gents. 110 now, as we record, since Chelsea won the final for last season. That seems like a long, long time ago, longer than Holy days ago. But yeah, it, it has returned. Thank, thankfully, it has returned to us. And a rather good start, Taylor, to the Champions League. 44 goals across these games and a few absolute crackers. Yeah, I, I think it's it's telling that when we were trying to figure out the running order for today, there were a lot of different games that were sort of in the conversation. We settled on kind of the four big ones, but it could have been any number because there were so many big results and so many goals. It was very fun, unless you're a fan of certain clubs, in which case it was still fun, just slightly less fun. Uh, 
Well, speaking of certain clubs, why don't we start mm-hmm. there, Taylor? All Let's right. start uh, as as one should with Group F. Uh, Villarreal and Atalanta <laughs> drew two two at El Madrigal. But the headline from Group F, Taylor: Young boys topping the group. Man United are mm, they're not third, second, or first in that group, should we say? After young boys two, Man United one. Uh, an American manager, kind of, and an American player saw off your team, Taylor. And Jesse Lingard got a wonderful assist, but not in the right third. Yeah, not so much. And I think that has been one way of understanding this game is that it came down to individual mistakes for Manchester United. There's the Lingard giveaway. There's the Aaron Wan-Bissaka red card that makes Manchester United play the majority of the game uh, down to 10 men. And that is certainly part of the explanation and I think does go some way towards explaining why this game went the way it did. But I also think, frustratingly so, a lot of the concerns I've had about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer were sort of brought to the forefront in this one because my concern has always been about how he sets this team up tactically. And then more importantly, especially in the Champions League, how he adjusts and adapts to what his opponent is doing. And I would argue that his adjustments in this game didn't really help and, if anything, made things even harder. It seemed like there were quite a few adjustments, Taylor, after the red mm-hmm. card for Aaron Wampasaka. The, the shape changed a little bit. Uh, uh, many substitutes were were, yep. uh, were were made. Is it an indictment of Solskjaer's limitations that he didn't quite handle that situation as one may expect? There was a lot of tweets. Um, Sam Ty saying all three of United's obvious weaknesses, central midfield, right back and manager, shining like SOS beacons on this game. What on earth was that approach following the red um, and a few other people sounding the klaxon for Solskjaer, which tends to happen when these kind of results happen. Taylor, it's 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 indicative of Manchester United in this competition to get a great result at you know the PSGs of this world against the expansive teams, and when you go to you know young boys on an artificial field, mm. things like this happen. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's probably true. I think I go back to the interview I had with Carl Anka, like probably a year ago at this point, where he had just written the article about how Manchester United sort of defied a style. You couldn't say, here's what they're doing with any level of clarity. And I think his argument at the time was that that's not necessarily a bad thing, that it shows that they're sort of able to adjust and do different things based on the opponent and and sort of just use their overwhelming tactic or not tactical technical dominance such as it is to to sort of get results but I think as time has gone on there hasn't been that next step that works for a while but then there has to be like okay here's what we know here's what we know we don't know and here's how we can change it and if anything I think yeah the changes that Ole makes in this game especially after the red card sort of show you that there hasn't been that next evolution because coming into it, you have Jaden Sancho on the right. That was exciting. You have Donny van de Beek starting in the middle, and that was very exciting. And there were just like a few little wrinkles in a game that felt like they could afford for those wrinkles to exist. And then it's Sancho who comes out, uh, making way for Diego Dalot. And then it's uh, Donny van de Beek coming off at halftime for Rafael Varane, which I think makes sense for what they were trying to do and how they wanted to see off the game. But it's sort of experimenting and then as soon as something goes wrong quickly abandoning the experiment in favor of something more static that should have been the first change going to going to if he's going to go to a back three go to the back three after the red card rather than taking off sancho which robs united of an outlet someone to relieve the pressure and then and then he keeps fernandez pogba and van de beek in the same midfield unit in a 10-man team there's not much industry in that midfield and then realizes his mistake, but then almost, you know, com- compounds the mistake with another change. And then laterally, even when he takes off, um, Fernandez and Ronaldo, and I actually thought like Ronaldo probably should have come off. That was the right change. But then you take Fernandez off and, and that swings things too far in the other direction where United had no way to create anything. And it just felt like, he Solskjaer conceded so much after the red card. No disrespect to young boys, but this didn't need to be a bunker job for Manchester United with 10 men. They could have still imposed their own game in, in maybe a slightly more limited way, but still controlled that match. And it was just, uh, for me, it was small-time uh, mentality from Solskjaer. And every so often, there's one of these, I think I'm maybe the on this podcast, maybe the the biggest defender of Solskjaer, but I can't deny that every so often there's one of these games that comes along that reminds you of Solskjaer's flaws as a coach. And I think when the margins are so narrow in the Premier League and the Champions League, when City, Chelsea and Liverpool have world-class coaches, th- like it's these sort of matches that could cost United their real chance, like a chance of real success with this, the, with this team. 
And, and I agree entirely, Graham. And I, and I think that is sort of what the defensive Ole has been for a while is like, yeah, but he's surrounding himself with people who know the club, who know how he wants to play, and they can help him communicate and help him get his message across, especially in training. And and I think that's a way of looking at it. But when you look at the changes he makes in this game, it, it was very much a, okay, we were, we were up 1-0, we've lost him into a red card, now we've got a bunker, now we've got to sit off. And I think... That, like, makes sense in a vacuum, but when you're Manchester United, I agree with you, no disrespect to young boys, but you can continue to sort of dictate control of the game, and then you don't have to change everything you're doing, and that's where I think you need that sort of headstrong assistant to say, like, wait, why are we doing that? Why are we making that change? And I think this still speaks to a lack of, I don't know, just strength in the coaching ranks, that there that there isn't a, wait, hold on, let's look at this again, let's see if there's another option here, as opposed to just go ultra-defensive, take off like creative attacking outlets and hope that we see this one through. Uh, yeah, the concern remains. The concern remains for me. So, Taylor, for you, is Solskjaer the one thing that holds this team back or is there anything else? I mean, I, I think I've long felt like a, the absence of a director of football is sort of a, a larger issue because I think what, what I keep sort of going to with that is that I would love for the club to have a, a sort of single philosophy and – you know, Barcelona have that. Is it working for them now? No. I would argue a large part of that is because they went away from that philosophy. And and I think for Manchester United, there isn't that sort of overarching, here's how we want to play, because historically it's been attack, 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 and that's what the crowd chants, and that's what everybody wants to see, and you look at the talent they've assembled, and that makes a lot of sense, and yet it still seems to be a team that functions the best on the counter, and that isn't quite the philosophy they're going for. So I, I don't know if Ole is the problem, but I think he is one of the problems and, a, and an increasingly large problem in my view. Um, well, uh, a silver lining for this one, Joe, um, an American getting the winning goal for young boys. Was that was an exciting moment? So I, I didn't get a chance to watch this game live, and I've only seen little snippets of it on the highlights and uh, as I was going about my day on Tuesday, I looked through Twitter and all of a sudden there were 87,000 tweets about Jordan Peefock scoring against Manchester United, scoring that late winner. What a moment for him. What a moment for my Twitter timeline. But also uh, one of the easier goals he'll score, just gifted to him on a silver platter by Jesse Lingard. Not not a, a good moment for Manchester United, but absolutely for, for Peefock and for my timeline and for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, nothing but good stuff on that one. Before the match, Solskjaer was asked about Paul Pogba's assist record, and he said that, rather bizarrely actually I thought, but he said that he doesn't count assists, so that's probably good news for Jesse Lingard, I would say. <laughs> you might count that one. You never know. Yeah. And, oh. um, just so I know, for, for my notes, Joe, is it Jordan Peefock is the name, or do we, because it'll see you on the commentary, what's, mm. what's, the, what's the correct way for, for that name? Yeah, so he said he prefers Jordan Peefock, which I believe Peefock is his mother's uh, yep. last name or maiden name, and that's Got the it. name that he, he wants to go by. So I think that's sort of what we've all just shifted towards, even though Google and a lot of the apps that have the lineups in them haven't made that change, which is somewhat understandable. When, when I'm talking about him, and then Taylor, the same goes for you on our yep. U.S. shows, we've used Peefock. I think his Twitter handle is call me Peefock. Yeah. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, that's <Really>? good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, Man United won't be calling him anything but curse words anytime soon, I imagine, <laughs> Taylor. But um, uh, yeah. a struggle in that group already. Why don't we move over to Group E? Uh, Dynamo Kiev getting a nil-nil draw with Benfica in a match you surely didn't watch unless you support one of those teams because elsewhere in the group, Barcelona nil, Bayern three. Joe, this was quite a one-sided affair in Bayern's favour. Barcelona ended a game without a shot on target for the first time in Champions League history and according to Mr Chip, Barcelona have lost three consecutive home matches in European competitions for the first time in club history. That's the uh, 3-0 loss to Juventus, 4-1 PSG and this one. What's going on here, Joe? <laughs> oh, oh, Ryan, this was this was not a good game for Barcelona. I want to, I do want to stay up front. I don't think they were played off the field in right. in at least stretches of this game. But if you're Barcelona, that's not good enough. Like that that one little silver lining is not good enough. The fact that Barcelona sat back in a pretty defensive five three two shape at home in a Champions League game. That's a sign for me of how far this team has fallen, how much this team has dropped off. Ronald Koeman has had Barcelona playing some solid soccer at times over the last year and change. But, man, the team is is nothing like it's been before, and that shouldn't be surprising to any of us at this point. When Messi leaves and when they've had the roster turnover and, and struggles and mismanagement within the club, it's not surprising that the on-field product isn't the same either. But this game was sort of a 
a really delayed eureka moment for me, watching them get picked apart uh, over and over again by Bayern Munich, just bringing the ball down Bayern's left side and then reversing it out through Upamecano and Pavard on the right side and finding space on the opposite side of the field over and over and over again. That's kind of where the first goal comes from, from Thomas Muller. It's a little bit of a different situation. But Barcelona were getting outplayed tactically. They were at a talent uh, differential. They were at a talent deficit, excuse me, uh, very clearly almost across the board in this game. This is this is a sign of how far Barcelona have dropped off, and Bayern Munich made it very clear to all of us. Yeah, I agree with with that, Joe, because I haven't really bought into this being a eureka moment. I want to clarify because I haven't really bought into the whole like Barcelona plays four three three. We never play with a back three. Uh, I've I've said before. I will say again. That's not true. They yeah. they did that under Cruyff when Kuman was playing. Like, but I think the difference is that it usually ended up being a three four three, and you still had the same principles. Whereas this game. Very specifically, was Barcelona in a three-one-four-two or a three-five-two? But it was a front two. It was pretty direct. It was yep. a more traditional target striker in Luke De Jong, yeah. who I did not know they had signed. I don't know if I missed <laughs> that. If I'm the only one, but I was like, "Wait, what? Who's this?" He's quite uh, low on the depth chart, Taylor. To be fair, he's Oof. also Dutch, so of course they signed him. Of course they did. Of course they did. But it, it just—it felt like this was Ronald Koeman being like, "Oh, you were mad that I played a back three instead of a back four? Well, now I'm going to abandon even more fundamental principles, and we'll see how it goes." Don't forget, I'm the one who saved this club. It's like it's like a toddler pushing back against instruction. Like, yeah. like he's pushing even further away from the root of Barcelona's oh, you know way of playing, which is not. Like, but the Barcelona way under Pep and Cruyff is not the only way to play soccer. You can play soccer in so many other ways and do it really well and be really good. But Barcelona now are in this nebulous middle zone. They played direct, like you're saying, Taylor, but they didn't play direct very well. They didn't have support for Depay and, and for De Jong up top. Those guys were isolated and they kept going towards them and they kept playing long and trying to find it between the lines with little chipped balls. And Bayern Munich kept winning the ball and they kept counterattacking and they kept possessing. And it was... It was rough for Barcelona in this game, even though I don't think they were completely dominated in all phases. What, one of the most baffling things, one of the starkest things about this game, and, and it was, I think I had a similar uh, sensation to all, all you guys, where it just really hit home how, how poor this Barcelona team is. But one of the starkest things, where has the, the trademark Barcelona high press gone? Because... Uh-huh. You could argue, it was, it was definitely on display for the first goal. You could argue that Barcelona get a little bit unlucky with the deflection off, um, who's that off? Eric Garcia, I think, maybe, from, yeah. uh, Thomas it's Miller's pretty- first goal. But he has so much time and space to get that, that shot, shot away. And, you know, Barcelona's high press, the thing that arguably changed football more than, more than anything else 10 years ago. I, I don't really remember before, maybe I'm being, naive here but before Guardiola's Barcelona I don't really remember talking about high press and 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 so on obviously it existed but it wasn't something you focused on as a, as a key feature of a team as much as you do now but it's totally gone now but, but Bayern Munich just had so much time and space to pass around not even just in the opposition half but on the edge of the the Barcelona box you know like 20 yards out from goal and when they when Barcelona did press high it was they didn't really seem to know how to do it properly it's a half-hearted one-man press every time you know Memphis takes a few steps forward to to pressure the ball but obviously Bayern Munich are technically able enough to just to just pass around them and and that was one of the starkest things for me is as just where where has that gone that that is just nowhere to be seen and they're just they're just passive almost at times Graham the, the stat Barca covered 109 kilometers on the field buying 127 so I think that tells you a little bit about the story of the press there and all the lack thereof on Barca's uh, part but also it was just like I, I, I perceived a general sort of lack of effort from Barcelona. There was a moment when it, I think it was one of the one of the goals that went off the post. The post got a couple of assists in this one, of course. But when Muziala had that shot that led to the second goal, and Pique was in front of Muziala, and he, you know, quite often you'd have seen a defender in his in his boots and Pique in his boots, like throw himself in front of it to try and stop the shot. He barely he barely was interested in blocking it. It seemed like there was a few moments like that, which to me were like, uh-oh, this, there's more going on here than just a few players being missing and, you know, some extenuating wow. circumstances. Any Anything on that, Taylor? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hilarious that you spotlight that because for the third goal, I'm pretty sure he then overcommits, gets cut really easily, and then Lewandowski shoots. So I'm glad he did the wrong thing for the second goal and then the wrong thing for the third goal. It's a perfect combination, which I think goes to Graham's point that this team just, they look disorganized. They don't look like they know 
what their cohesive defensive game plan is going to be and how that transitions into attack and what they're going to do when they have the ball. Defensively, uh, Michael Cox did a pretty good breakdown of this game for the Athletic. One of the things he spotlighted was that Barcelona continuously left Benjamin Pavar open on the right. And I think the idea there was that they wanted to basically isolate him, let him have the ball because they did not want Alfonso Davies to have the ball, which makes sense if you're playing against like an amateur on that side. But it's not as though Pavard, who, lest we forget, scored a screamer in the World Cup, can't attack. And when you're giving him 40 yards of space to dribble into... He will find he will take that space and he will find passing options because also Bayern Munich do co- have a coherent game plan and do have a manager who can make those adjustments to kind of feed off what Barcelona are giving them. And then they still managed to find Alfonso Davies. So I thought across the board, Bayern <laughs> maybe could have taken some more chances. It could have been even worse, but it's still a great result for them, a great performance from them. Certainly less so from Barcelona. Yeah, agreed there. Joe, your thoughts on, on Bayern, who it seems like they've certainly upgraded their defence with a Meccano, a next level addition, if you will. And Nagelsmann's setup here, there was a high line, but maybe not as suicidally high as it has been previously with this Bayern team. Is that fair to say? I think so. I, I don't think this was an overly aggressive approach from Bayern Munich in this game. They pressed a lot, but they didn't press all the time, and they didn't go out and do it in a crazy way. They mostly defended in a 4-4-2. Sometimes it would look more like a 4-1-4-1 with Goretzka stepping forward a bit alongside Thomas Muller. But, I mean, it was a lot of pretty standard stuff defensively from Bayern Munich, and then with the ball, they didn't do anything super crazy either. They didn't have to because there was plenty of space outside of Barca's front two, outside of their midfield three, which I I already kind of talked about, and Taylor just did a great job of talking about Pavard there as well. Bayern didn't have to bend over backwards or or jump through any real hoops to win this game. They just played their game, not even the best I've seen them play under Nagelsmann so far, but they did more than enough to get the victory, which still for me says a bit more about Barca than it does about Bayern, because we know how good this Bayern team is. I think one of the the surest things that that Nagelsmann's done, I think we were all expecting a bit more tactical innovation from Nagelsmann when he came into Bayern Munich. You know, obviously his, his Leipzig team were a case study in tactical, you know, new ideas and tactics. And he ha- he's kind of stayed away from that, which I think I think is quite wise because this team didn't need rebuilding. Yes, there's a, there was a, a defensive pro- uh, issue, you know, with, with um, Alaba and Boateng leaving. He seems to have done pretty well with that, but it's still the 4-2-3-1 shape that Bayern Munich have played in for a number of years. And he's just, he's just tweaking little things. I, I did feel rather vindicated um, watching this match when I was I was looking at how Leroy Sané was playing. I think this is definitely a thing now. Um, Nagelsmann wants Sané to be the one on the end of passes rather than the ones making the passes. And had it not been for Ter Stegen, he would have got a, a couple of goals here. And I think the role he's playing for Bayern Munich this season reminds me a little bit of... It's not a perfect comparison, I admit this, but it reminds me a little bit of Salah's role for Liverpool, but with slightly more freedom to, to drift to the, to the left, um, and cutting from the, come from the right. I think he actually started on the left, Sane, in this game, but he, he has a bit more freedom to go left to right and right to left than Sane, uh, than Salah does, sorry. But the number of the times that Sane found himself in central positions, having started out in a wide position, reminded me of Salah and the way that he's now getting shots away as the, um, obviously, Lewandowski is still the poacher in this team, but it really feels like they're kind of playing into to Sane now for him to provide the final product, meaning a shot on goal. And that reminds me of, of Salah a little bit. Graham, I think that's a really smart comparison. And I think it also speaks to what Nagelsmann does that I think Klopp does, which is if he's going to give a one player more freedom, and this is my read on things, like if he's going to give somebody more freedom, I think that means that somebody else on the team has less freedom, that they have more responsibility for where they need to be, how they need to get there, how they need to be on the ball, how quickly they need to keep the ball moving. I think there are more assignments when you're freeing players up to do other different things. And that to me is coaching. That to me is training. It's basically giving your team a lot of different looks. And I think you're right. Nagelsmann hasn't reinvented this team, but he's given them basically new weapons and new approaches. And Sané, maybe he's going to come central, but that's going to leave space for Alfonso Davies to overlap. But then sometimes Sané won't come central and he'll make a run in behind, but then everybody seems to know what to do. And contrast that with the way Barcelona were defending when... Okay, this guy's been open for 10 minutes, so now we'll sit somebody on him. Okay, but now this guy's open for 10 minutes, so I guess somebody else sit on him. It was very reactive, whereas Bayern just kept making proactive, small adjustments, either from the players or from the manager, but either way, they kept having an impact. 
I'm sure Barcelona are very much looking forward to their forthcoming trip to Bavaria. Have some potential <laughs> banana skins with uh, trips to Kiev and uh, to uh, Benfica as well in this group. One final note, Graham, on this game. Kit watch. Yeah. Um, Barcelona having a separate Champions League kit, it looks like. Yep. Not a big fan. I mean, if you're a Barcelona fan and you're looking at this season, 21-22, is it the season where you think, I'm going to buy two kits this year to commemorate this wonderful season? Uh, not the home one that they wear in La Liga, I think. I, I'm not. It's the shorts about that one. It's, yeah. it's a step too far. Half and half shorts when you've got such a, a bold shirt. I'm not a fan of. However, I will disagree with you on the Champions League shirt. I think that I really like that Champions League shirt. It's it's a lot better than the home one. And actually, Bayern Munich in this match as well. There were there were a lot of patterns on show in, in this match. It might be sensory overload slightly, but I also really like the Bayern Munich one as well. A kind of mountain landscape uh, illustration kind of strange thing I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan excellent not quite as good as the black and gold though for Bayern maybe Graham oh I prefer the mountain one I, I just can't get the picture out of my head of the Premier League Hall of Fame kits with that second uh, that second Bayern Munich kit but it's, it's nice enough yeah it's not a bad kit certainly all right, look forward to uh, seeing you remortgage your house to get those extra kits <laughs> uh, we're going to take a break we'll be back with more games after these messages Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We're talking Champions League, more specifically, Group B. Atletico Madrid were held nil-nil by Porto here. Felt like a fairly predictable scoreline there, but the Spaniards were spared. Uh, spared defeat, I should say, by a VAR review that overturned a late goal from Taremi in this one. Uh, Atleti getting lucky late on, it seems, is a theme, at least over the last few days. Elsewhere in Group B, though, a few more goals went in at Anfield, Taylor. Liverpool 3, Milan 2... A very entertaining game. One of several very entertaining games over this match day. Um, A comeback from behind against Milan. Who'd have thunk it, huh? With a Maldini (laughs) in the team as well, Taylor. It was all very fitting. Yeah, I think earlier we were saying this is in the top three uh, because obviously we have 2005 and then 2007. I would put this ahead of 2007 because that one, Milan, I think we're up 2-0 until like late into the 80s and then Liverpool Liverpool went back. Here, a lot of back and forth. A lot of back and forth. So much so that I look forward to rewatching this one because I watched it live and have very few notes because I was so engaged with it. I would love to know how Milan were able to do what they did in that in that first half, at the close of the first half. Uh, but mostly I just have notes about how awesome this game was. Yeah, Graham, this one with, with Milan, they were massively outplayed from the outset, it seemed like, particularly for the first yeah. half, but still managed to go into the lead. How did that work out? Yeah, you're, you're right. I think from, from much of the, the first half, it seemed that Liverpool were, were going to run away with this match. They were utterly rampant in the first 20 minutes in particular. I thought Alexander Arnold and, and, and Robertson, they, they played, um, 24 crosses over, the, over the 90 minutes. And it, and it wasn't just their, their creativity, but they were actually setting the tone for the high press. I think there's a, there's a, a chance for Jota, I think it is, where um, Robertson on the left side just steps so high up to the halfway line to cut out uh, an AC Milan pass forward on the counter and instantly just puts Liverpool back on the attack. And that that felt like a moment when I was watching this back. I did watch this one live, but I, I watched it back this morning. And that epitomised the, the first 20 minutes of this game where it just felt like wave after wave of Liverpool pressure. So yes, it was... Very strange that AC Milan managed to go into halftime ahead. I think what happened was, and Robertson spoke a little bit about this after the match, but spaces started to open up in in the centre midfield with, with Liverpool. I don't know how much of that was AC Milan changing their game 
or whether it was Liverpool actually kind of dropping off slightly and, and losing that intensity. Runners weren't, weren't tracked very well. I do wonder how much of that was, was down to Virgil van Dijk being rested in this match, which I thought was my, my eyebrow was raised when I saw that on the, on the team seat, team sheet, just because Joe Gomez was back in the Liverpool team for this game as his first start after a long injury layoff. And I just think maybe you would want Virgil van Dijk alongside a young defender, um, after making his first start after injury, as I say. So there, there seemed to be a lack of communication. Ante Rebic seemed to be making the most of that, which is obviously how he scores the first one. And then the second goal comes from a, a kind of blocked shot of his that's, that's, that's turned home from close range by Brian, by Brian Diaz. So I, I'm not sure if AC Milan, maybe Joe has some, some different ideas. Joe, I'll, I'll pass the mic to you on this one. But it felt like Liverpool were actually the cause of their own downfall here by by allowing those spaces to open up. Yep, I, I totally agree, Graham. Especially with that first goal, Milan have a chance to possess, which they really hadn't had for large stretches of the first half before this 42nd minute sequence. And, and Liverpool are a little bit scrambled. There are some gaps in midfield and they are a little bit deeper, which is not where they wanted to be in this game. They wanted to be engaging the ball high up the field and winning it, which they did for large stretches of this match. But in this moment, on the first goal, they are disorganized. And, and it's a really nice forward pass that then gets the ball uh, to Diaz and he threads it through, breaking through Liverpool's midfield line. And then a couple passes later, Rebic has the ball and scores it. It's a, it's a nice string of passes. And then AC Milan just come right back after the next kickoff and, and score a Again, Liverpool attack, Milan win it off the kickoff and then counter. Leal plays it over to Rebic on the overlap and then Rebic can square it in for Theo Hernandez and then it's the tap in from Diaz after the block from Robertson. It's nothing mind-blowing here from Milan and it was more, for me at least, to do with a nice bit of direct attacking play on the second goal but, but a lot to do with Liverpool being a bit disorganized, which was a surprise because they had been dominant, utterly dominant, like more dominant than Bayern were against Barcelona, in my view, at least. They were all over the place. They were all over Milan. They were stepping forward. They were pressing. They were winning the ball high up the field. Milan looked hopeless in the early stretches of this game. And the fact that they were up 2-1, they they had life again before halftime and obviously it didn't pan out for them. But that was, those couple of goals were two of the most against the run of play goals I've seen in a really long time. Taylor, my notes say that Milan have the second youngest squad in this competition. They have Giroud and Ibrahimovic in their squad. So I don't know if that's mean average or median average, but uh, uh, an, an interesting stat, that one. What was your take on, on what Milan did here? Uh, I mean, I think that they played pretty effectively on the counter. I think they maybe targeted that right-hand side. Uh, and I think lots of people on Twitter have given their thoughts about why you would do that and who starts it right back for Liverpool. Uh, I felt very bad for Andy Robertson on the opposite side. He has, uh, on that sort of blocked goal uh, that sent uh, Milan ahead, he gets there and he just gets a touch to it, but then it slowly rolls in and you can see him just looking forlorn as uh, Milan go up 2-1. to one. But I think... That is tremendously to their credit, and I do think the absence of Van Dyke is part of that because I think of him as being so good at defending in transition and especially defending in overloads. And I think it's equally to Liverpool's credit that they're able to to pull one back because this game easily could have been after halftime. We're very vulnerable on the counter. We don't like the way that went. We need to kind of like make sure we're kind of calm here. We don't give anything away. And again, contrasting it with Man United, there's a reality in which a team sort of sets up shop to be more defensive and then try to play from there. And I think that would have gone against everything that Jurgen Klopp sort of preaches and practices. And so no surprise to me that they come out, play as aggressive as they had, or even maybe more so, but then also take their chances. And if you're a Liverpool fan, you have to be very happy about who scored that winner and how it was scored. Because it is a very difficult goal to put in the back of the net the way Jordan Henderson does, to hit it sort of down but keep it on frame. But then also just like a long-standing servant scoring scoring that goal has to make you happy. Yeah, it was Gerard-esque, wasn't it, Graham? That was good to see. And I think a, a, a good moment, certainly, at Anfield. And I'll tell you who else I thought, uh, Graham, uh, was really good and looked so comfortable on the ball. It was Curtis Jones when he came on. Yeah. Um, he's looking like another player. Well, Harvey Elliott, obviously, is, is going to be out for a while, but another player who's going to be one for the future to, to, to bank for this team. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've got him down in, in my notes, and I've got Naby Keita as well down in my notes. Obviously, it's now or never for, for Naby Keita in, in this Liverpool team, in particular, when Aldum is, is gone, Elliot is injured, as you referenced there. He's, he's 
looks like he'll be out for a while. So it's going to be up to Naby Keita and, and Curtis Jones to provide some energy in that Liverpool midfield. And I thought both both those players actually played quite well. Obviously, maybe Curtis Jones stands out slightly more coming off the bench because of his, his, his young age and he didn't cost, you know, £50 million. You maybe don't expect it from him. But another player that I'd, I'd, I'd like to praise and, and put some uh, respect on the name of is, is Divock Origi who was in the Liverpool team for the first time, I think, since since last season. I was pretty sure he'd got lost somewhere in the Anfield corridors, never <laughs> to be found again. But he actually did a really good job. Um, he led the, the high press really well. His movement was, was good to create space for others around him, most notably um, Salah. And there was a sharpness to his game, which made no sense, given that he's barely played any football recently in his chipped assist for Salah's equaliser as well at 2-2 I'm, I'm not sure I knew he could do that sort of thing so that, that was a little bit of a surprise and I think at this point obviously Jota starts this game out on the, the I think Manny doesn't play this game that's right isn't it yeah Manny doesn't play Jota starts out on the left side and at this point, I think maybe um, Origi is, is maybe the best deputy for Firmino in terms of mirroring what he, he does for Liverpool. He's He's been signed, Origi was very much signed as a goal scorer, but I actually think his all-round game is a lot better than people give him credit for. And this this was a, a an illustration, a demonstration of that. So maybe maybe let's not forget about Divock Origi. He, he, he's still a valuable member of this Liverpool team and... and I uh, yeah, I think he deserves a bit more credit. This This was a good performance. Indeed. And another good Liverpool performance, of course, from Mo Salah here, although he did miss the penalty, which leads me, Joe, to um, a man who had some very big shoes to fill, who does have big shoes to fill in Milan, uh, Mike Magnon in goal, uh, filling Donnarumma's shoes, of course. He seems pretty strong, doesn't he? An impressive performance from him. Yeah, I've I've only ever seen or heard good things about Mike Magnon. I, I've seen good numbers about him floating around on Twitter, which I know can uh, at times not be the best source of information. It's a little Wikipedia-esque. But uh, I've only ever heard good reviews about his game, and I've heard that they're not going to really be missing Donnarumma all that much. They will miss him, and he obviously has a an important role to play in terms of Italy's national team. But yeah, I think Mike Magnan is going to be a really big piece of this Milan team, which is a young team, and they have so much talent. I've, I've been hard on them from this game because they weren't very good. But they have a ton of quality young players and they're an exciting team to watch and having a solid presence in goal is is obviously going to be a big piece of that and I think like when you concede three it's easy to look and say like oh the goalkeeper probably should have done better with with some of those and and maybe that's the case but for Magnon I think overall had a very good game and the one that I wanted to spotlight was the Mohamed Salah goal in the 48th minute not the penalty miss but the goal itself because that's the one where, on the surface, it looked like Magnon did make, make a mistake. That he comes off of his line, realizes that the offside line has been breached, that he's not going to get to the ball first, and then he backpedals. And when you have your goalkeeper backpedaling in that situation, oftentimes I would say, uh-oh, they have gambled on themselves and now they've recognized something is off. But in actuality, I think it's really, really smart because by by rushing out and then backpedaling the way he does... It invites Salah to only see the rush out and think I've got to take this as quickly as I can and just smash that ball. And sometimes it's on frame, but sometimes it's right at the goalkeeper. Sometimes it's over. And if anything, I think it's just an an incredible credit to Salah that he uses the outside of his left to to kind of put that on frame when I think nobody saw that coming, least of all Magnon. And, And so... I don't think the goalkeeper did anything wrong for the goals, but I think instead we just saw some very well-taken chances from Salah and then from uh, Henderson for the winner. Indeed. Well, this game, I'm really glad this game lived up to its billing because, you know, I was expecting it maybe not to. I saw some comments about, you know, this was worthy of any Champions League final. And I was thinking, I don't remember a final being this good. (laughs) <laughs> they're not usually this good are they but uh, a very good one from yeah. Liverpool and Milan at Anfield and the atmosphere I think probably helped him we're going to talk about Man City uh, after the break but the contrast between the, the atmosphere that you could even get uh, deduced through the TV uh, at Man City and Anfield I think it really is a big difference maker in this competition and another reminder that the fans they be very important we'll be back very shortly to talk about that Man City game and more after these very important messages This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Group A of the Champions League. PSG, Taylor, were held by Club Bruges. 1-1 yeah, in Belgium, this one. Messi's first start, but not quite at his best by all accounts here. Uh, PSG's squad's worth a squillion dollars, and Messi, Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe up front. 1-1 draw with Bruges, Taylor. Huh, how about that? Uh, except it was more of a 1-1 win for Man City because Bruges did not play Owen Otisoe, the uh, the U.S. potential men's national team midfielder, so I think they get points against them for that. <laughs> fair enough, fair Ryan, enough. Ryan, how much money did you put on Ander Herrera being PSG's top scorer this season? <laughs> I wish not I put enough. all of the monies on it. I wish I put all of the monies on it, indeed. Uh, yeah, quite an upturn for the books there. We'll see how PSG progress in this group. Next up, I believe, Graham, PSG have a little old team called Man City who played RB Leipzig uh, on Wednesday. 6-3, nine goals. A very entertaining match. Another very entertaining match in this group in which... Um, Defending was pretty optional. And, and as I mentioned before the break, a far less than capacity crowd at the Etihad. We know Manchester City have, uh, uh, and their fans have a difficult relationship with this competition. They have done for many years. And I think it takes away from the occasion a little bit when it's not quite Anfield uh, there. But um, all, all the same, Jack Grealish got his first Champions League goal, Graham. And it was a beautiful goal as well. And um, uh, you got Tyler Adams' book for trying to take him out as well. That's that's my Jack Grealish report. But uh, what, what, did, what did you make of this game and the defending or lack thereof, Graham? Yeah, I mean, it was a hugely entertaining game. And, and in the UK here, we have this thing called the Goal Show on BT Sport. They're the official rights holder. And, and it's becoming a bit of a joke in the studio. So they have a, a, a pundit watching each game. It's the Soccer Saturday format, except they actually are allowed to show you the, the goals in this case. And, and Don Hutchison was doing this game and, and it was becoming a... A, a laughing matter within the studio that they had to keep, keep coming back to him. Even on a night where there were plenty of goals elsewhere, he seemed to be hogging the, the limelight. And, and yes, it was, it was very entertaining. I think a game that was probably dominated, I think, by, I know, uh, Christopher Nkuku scores a, a hat trick in this one, but it seemed like the headline for me was, was Jack Grealish. Um, for a player who's considered one of the best in the Premier League and has been for a while now, 26, I think it's fair to say is quite old to be making a, a Champions League debut, especially when you look at how many times Jude, someone like Jude Bellingham, I mean, this is his second Champions League season, he's 18 years old, Phil Foden, I think he's played maybe 27 or 28 times in the Champions League now. These are his England teammates, his, his, his contemporaries, his peers, and, and they're you know significantly younger players with much more experience. But I think this is a, a stage that was made for Jack Grealish. And even though I think he's still playing within himself a little bit, He's made a very impressive start to, to City career. And I think something that I noticed in this match, one of the most impressive things about the start he's made at Man City is he, City are looking to him so often. You know, they've got so many players in that team who can produce something out of nothing. And yet it seems to be that the play is gravitating more and more with every match towards Jack Grealish on that, on that left side. He assists the first goal. He kind of, um, 
I, w- I would say created the opportunity for the second one, although there's some questionable defending going on uh, going on there by Mukiele. That he was involved in the third goal and he scores the fourth goal. So you know he has he has a hand in pretty much ev- everything that that City did in an attacking sense here. And I think another really encouraging thing about this performance for City and Gra- Jack Grealish's performance for City is that that burgeoning relationship he has with Kevin De Bruyne. Uh, De Bruyne has obviously had some injury troubles, and if City can keep him fit. That partnership between De Bruyne and Grealish, it could be the thing that makes City completely uncatchable this season. So, yeah, it was it was an impressive performance by Grealish and an entertaining game, and and City can be pretty pleased with the work they did here, despite the fact that they did concede three goals. <laughs> they did indeed, and I, I completely concur with your your notes on Grealish there, Graham. I think that's been a huge surprise to me. I mean, there was lots of um, uh, speculation that Guardiola wouldn't use him properly. I was sceptical as to whether he was going to you know, unseat the likes of Raheem Sterling in this team, but he is being given a lot of minutes. He's making real contributions, as you say. Great corners, great goal. Just, just a, a player I didn't expect to be contributing to this team as much as he has been as well. Uh, Taylor, what did you make of Man City in this game? Because, yes, a 6-3 scoreline here, but it was they were ran pretty close for most of this game by RB Leipzig and um, conceding three goals, not optimal for a team of Man City stature in this competition. So I will be honest and say that I watched this game from more of a Leipzig perspective. I am slightly concerned about Leipzig. I'm also, you know, as I've already established with the Owen Odesoe thing, uh, watching these from red, white, and blue tinted glasses, which is a fun point to note that uh, Ted Lasso's Barmy Army on Twitter pointed out there are two more American managers in the Champions League this season than there, than there are English managers. So in your face, Ryan. <laughs> uh, but in terms of talking about why City conceded three goals, I probably won't be as useful or effective. So I'll turn it over to Graham. Graham, your thoughts on the defense for Man City. The, the, the thing that stood out for me was just the, the, the relationship or the, the lack thereof uh, between... Aki and Ruben Diaz, obviously Aki coming in is, is not the first choice partner alongside Ruben Diaz for, for City. So it just felt to me there were real flaws in that understanding. It never really felt, it, it never felt like either of them really knew who was, who was picking up runners. And that obviously resulted in them having aerial troubles against, uh, Nkuku, who, who scores two headers in this game, particularly his, his second goal felt like they, they lost the, the run of, of him. So that was, that was the, the thing that, that stood out. For me, for me, most of all, obviously, Aki gets a, a goal himself. I, I don't know if, if Guardiola will be that bothered about it. I think it's almost like a, an occupational hazard of the way he rotates this team and also the way that, that City do play, um, even at home. And also the fact they were against an RB Leipzig team that were willing to go toe-to-toe, toe-to-toe with them. I almost felt it was quite a Leeds United-esque performance from, from Leipzig. For better or worse, you could see both sides of, of that, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm, Guardiola is not going to change, and I think he was probably more. Um, I think he was more upset with the empty seats <laughs> at the stadium. I don't know yeah. if anyone caught his comments afterwards. I mean, he was pretty close to calling it the empty head. <laughs> he, he was like, "Please come and watch us play Southampton, please. We want some fans here at the weekend." Yeah, it was a little interesting his comments there, Graham. Um, Joe, in terms of uh, RB Leipzig's performance here, um, Graham mentioning it was kind of a swashbuckling Leeds United kind of approach. Committing too many players to attack here, leaving a bit too much, much space in the middle. What was what was the main issue here, Joe? Uh, there were so there are a few different issues here. Uh, issue number one is just individual defensive errors, and that those those plagued Leipzig in this game. The own goal from Mukele is, is the most obvious example, but there were an, a number of different individual errors. Tyler Adams, not necessarily an error here, but gets just cut right up by Jack Grealish on Grealish's goal, which is a lovely finish from Jack Grealish. So there are some individual defensive mistakes and some some moments where you want more in 1v1 defensive situations. The other issue, as I saw it for Leipzig, is especially early on in this game, they were getting picked apart a little bit by Manchester City. One of the rotations from City that I picked up on was Zinchenko, who played as a left back in this game. He would start a little bit wider, not not all that wide, but maybe in that left half space, that left corridor. And then as City were in possession, he would just tuck inside in in between the right midfielder and the right forward for Leipzig in their 4-4-2 block. That's how Jesse Marsh set up his team defensively in this game. And Zinchenko would just, just drop a little bit deeper and in between those two players for Leipzig. And they couldn't figure out how to track him. They couldn't figure out who was supposed to step, who was supposed to drop, how to cut off access into midfield. And so Zinchenko just kept getting on the ball in that spot between Leipzig's wide midfielder and striker and just bouncing the ball inside to Rodri or bouncing the ball forward on the left. And he could just look up, play a quick pass 
glass. And in that moment, Leipzig's defensive shape was compromised. That's that's what leads to, I believe it's the second goal. Um, it's it is the own goal, I, I think. I can't I can't find it in my notes. But it happens a bunch of times in the first half, and Leipzig cannot figure out how to adjust. So they were in moments, they were outplayed. But with the ball, I thought they actually looked pretty good in this game. They broke through City's own defensive shape. They broke lines. Conrad Limer had a nice, a few nice passes from deep, finding Angelino out wide on the left. They created chances. And Kunko was a quality attacking player. Uh, Forsberg is, is a nice piece as well. Daniel Olmo in, inside in this game, playing off of Andre Silva. I like a lot of what Leipzig brought to the table in this game. They were not played off the field, but you can't win games when you're giving up six goals. That is just, it's unacceptable to a certain point. And so that's the real issue for Leipzig it is that the results keep compounding and the negative results keep compounding. And I don't know that they're actually playing all that poorly, but when you're not getting the results in a way, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I think, what, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead, Graham. I was just going to very quickly say, I liked what I saw from Poulsen when he comes on for the, the final 30 minutes. Obviously, he's been out injured for, for a while. And I think that is a plus for Leipzig because it feels to me like he's a, he's a better fit to lead this line than Andre Silva. I know he's been signed to be the, the main man up front. I think he's a bit of a misfit at the moment. So I think Poulsen coming back might be a big thing for Marsh. And I think they did a good job of, of exploiting that Man City high line, which I probably should have mentioned as something they didn't do so well. I don't know if that was a particularly good idea against a team with the the pace on the break that Leipzig had. But uh, again, that's just a Gardula thing that he's likely not going to change. So despite the fact they concede six in this game, um, going off the back of what you were saying, Joe, I think there are some positives from from the way Leipzig performed here. And going off the back of what Graham just said, <laughs> I, I will agree about his Andre Silva point. I do think Yusuf Falsen comes in and probably makes this team better because this particular Leipzig team under Jesse Marsh seem like they want to exploit opportunities down the wing and then get the ball uh, central either via crosses or via like passes inside and then they have possession closer to goal. I don't know if that suits Andre Silva as much and I don't know if it suits Andre Silva, Silva as much when you don't have Sabitzer there. And I think this was the game where I felt like they really missed Marcel Sabitzer because he is so smart and so steeped in the, the RB system or the Red Bull system that I feel like he would have been able to read some of those defensive moments and would have been able to make certain plays that other people weren't picking up on. And that was really what I saw from this Leipzig team overall, was a team that are still sort of figuring it out and still finding ways to play and how they best want to play across the board. And so Jesse Marsh, his results have not been good so far. I think this is their fourth loss in five games. But I think Leipzig, as I've said already... Pretty hesitant to make rash decisions, don't want to be premature in their decision making, and I think he will get the time to keep trying to figure this team out. My hope would be that he does and that this fixture, uh, when Leipzig are at home, is much closer, much more competitive, much more back and forth in a sort of both teams scoring multiple goals as opposed to one team doubling the other team's goal tally. Uh, I did uh, take a look back at when Nagelsmann first took over Leipzig because I was wondering if maybe there were similarities with coming into a, a club that have an established system, but then you're going to kind of build on that. And really, Nagelsmann started pretty well from the jump. I think he had like four wins from his first five games. His only draw was against Bayern Munich. Uh, they had spent money that summer to reinforce. They had sold some players. There are a lot of familiar symptoms between Marsh taking over and Nagelsmann taking over, the difference being the results. The only other thing that I thought was kind of key, uh, a key difference would be that the status of the other clubs in the Bundesliga pretty different at that time. When Nagelsmann takes over, it's Nico Kovac at Bayern Munich, it's Lucien Favre at Dortmund, and it's Marco Rosa in his very first season with Gladbach. So maybe the Bundesliga as a whole a little bit weaker, and that made it more forgiving for Nagelsmann. The Bundesliga this time around... I think much more competitive, and I do think Marsh is going to have to figure some things out really quickly if they want to stay in those Champions League spots or get to those Champions League spots and then stay there. Maybe, maybe I'm crazy. I'm I'm weirdly not all that worried about Leipzig Agreed. right now. I, I like a lot of what we're seeing from this team. The way they're able to use the ball. I know. I know. We talked about this. Earlier on in a weekend review at some point this season, it was the, the Stuttgart game. And Stuttgart de- didn't defend well in that game. They left a ton of space. But the building blocks are there for this team, this Jesse Marsh Leipzig team, to become more than just a transition-heavy team. They have the tools to break through a defensive block. They have the quality to break lines and operate in tight spaces and play. And those are all things that Jesse likes. It's just a matter of how does he how does he continue to instill some of those principles in this group. I like a lot of what we're seeing right now. This game was 2-1 to City. It was then 3-2 to City. It was 4-3 to City. 
Leipzig kept fighting back. I don't think they were absolutely dominated in this game. If some of those individual errors, uh, you know, get cleaned up and some of the, the, the more systemic defensive breakdowns are cleaned up, and I, I think they will be, I don't, I don't think Leipzig are going to be in all that much trouble. Yeah, I, I agree, especially in the Bundesliga. In the Champions League, I also think their one big sort of victory is that PSG drew, as Ryan mentioned. And so there is a reality in which if PSG won and won in commanding style, then this group is pretty divided like after match day one, as it is now, City on top, but then it's, what, like uh, Leipzig with zero points, but then the two ahead of them only have the one. It it does seem like it will end up being hopefully more open for Leipzig from an American perspective, but I think that draw really does help them feel less pressure immediately up front, especially because going away to Man City is not a result that I'm going to believe they thought is there for the taking. Yeah, they better hope it doesn't go down to goal difference then, Taylor, in that case, if we're looking at the table. (laughs) This Um, is true. This is true. <laughs> and I, I appreciate building blocks being there and, and not being too worried about Marsh's future. But, you know, 10 goals in a week conceded, l- losing four of your first five games. There's got to be a bit of pressure mounting on him, surely, at this point, And maybe that affects decision making, Taylor. Um, I, I don't I honestly don't know, because I think it depends on what Leipzig's expectations were and what they kind of briefed him on when he took over the position. If they said, we fully expect this to be a rebuilding year, you've lost key players, we've got like you're coming into a system that isn't your own, that you've got to kind of figure out who fits where and let players grow. If there was an expectation that it was going to be rocky early, then I, I think it's basically going to plan. If because of the money they spent and some of the names they brought in, there was more of a, okay, maybe you're not going to win the Champions League, but we want you comfortably top four the entire season. Then there is some pressure there from the board, from the outside. But I think as Joe already kind of mentioned, Jesse Marsh is a is a pretty smart guy and a pretty ruthlessly competitive guy at that. Uh, and so I think if there is if there is pressure, he's probably compounding it by putting a lot more on himself to get things sorted and get things going. And I think... Again, from an American perspective, uh, I don't. I guess I don't need to keep prefacing that. It's not as though I'm going to suddenly start talking from an Italian perspective. Uh, but I think he's aware <laughs> of the reputation <laughs> of Americans in Europe, and that there, it's it's very easy to write off an American getting things wrong as Americans don't know what they're doing. And I think there probably is that pressure of this is, I would argue, the highest profile gig a U.S. Uh, coach has gotten outside of the U.S. national team, and so. There probably is an awareness that if it doesn't go well, it's another strike against American coaches getting gigs abroad. Because even David Wagner is, I would say, I said two, two American coaches, I would say like one and a half. Because I think yeah. he played for the U.S. national team. I don't know how much time he ever spent in the United States. But Jesse Marsh is one who's kind of steeped, came through the Red Bull Academy system, obviously, uh, has prior MLS experience. And I think will probably be very aware that if things don't go well, it might be a little bit of a while before another U.S. coach gets a gig abroad some important context as well I think is that that Leipzig have had a really rough start to the season as well in terms of fixtures um, if you look through the fixtures that they've they've lost really only the one that I'd say is, is a bad loss is the, is the defeat to Mainz and that's their very first game of the season you know after that they beat Stuttgart in, in a pretty convincing manner 4-0 then it's Wolfsburg away they've had a, a perfect start to the league season then it's Bayern Munich then it's Manchester City away and so I think we'll we'll learn a lot more about Marsh and Leipzig over the next few weeks where the fixture list starts to get a little bit kinder and there will be matches there where despite the fact that it's a work in progress Leipzig will be expected to win and if they don't win those matches that's when I think you start the pressure really starts to mount because then you are performing below expectations at the moment because of the fixture list I think you couldn't really have expected maybe the, the score lines might have been less emphatic but I, I think it's pretty much gone to form and, and what you would expect from those games so far I think just to clarify, Ryan, based off of your your question about pressure that you posed to Taylor, there is pressure on Jesse Marsh right now. And, and saying that there isn't, and I, I think, is is naive, right? This is a huge job at a massive corporation that expects results, right? But there is context here, like Graham's mentioning. There is context here, like Taylor's mentioning, in terms of the long-term vision and plan in Jesse Marsh's own past. The, the reason for me why I'm not particularly worried is because I think Leipzig are playing well enough to win games. I think they've shown enough already, even in the losses, to give me hope for this team, right? I think, I think they do things well enough on the ball to create chances. They are, they're still developing defensively, but 
they have a lot of those building blocks too. The results aren't coming right now, and that's a problem, as I said before. But I, I think from what we've seen so far, they have the pieces and the tactical pieces, both so, so personnel and the tactics, to actually come out and start winning games and getting results and climbing up the Bundesliga table. The Champions League, it's kind of a free pass for this team, right? Because no one's expecting them to get out of the group. As soon as that draw happened, no one is expecting them to get out of the group. So if they continue to climb up the Bundesliga table, and, and who knows, maybe they do sneak out in the second spot in this group, excuse me. But but I, I think we've seen enough from this squad to say, wow, they, they have the pieces and the ability to actually be a lot better than they are right now. That is a fair and balanced assessment of Ebi Leipzig's situation, Joe. Thank you very much. Although uh, the, the corporation, as you call them, I suddenly need a shower after hearing them described <laughs> as that. Um, let's go as around. As long as you're showering in Red Bull, you're fine, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, no wings will be involved in my shower. Um, Group C, Ajax got a 5-1 win at Porto. Four goals from Sebastian Hilaire there. Uh, in the same group, Besiktas got a 1-2 loss to Borussia Dortmund. Jude Bellingham and Erling Haaland getting the goals for Dortmund there. Bellingham's was a Brilliant goal. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you look it up. A well, one-touch and volley finish from an angle there. Um, Graham, kit watch for uh, Dortmund once again, though. They were wearing no. a very fluorescent yellow. Um, it was the, the Man City third kit, but their version thereof with no crest on it. But, you know, we are Dortmund or whatever it is written on the front. Not a fan, right? <laughs> yes, it's not a good kit. I actually, um, in research for this podcast, I tried to work out if everyone that had worn the, the Puma kit uh, the, the kind of third kit had had lost in this round of fixtures, and Dortmund were the ones that uh, that that ruined that. Um, there were some defeats. I think was Shakhtar wearing were they were they wearing that template as well in their defeat to to Sheriff? I think they they perhaps were, but it's not. Let's it's not my were. favorite kit. Yeah, every team that <laughs> lost were. in Champions League in yep. this in this uh, round of fixtures, yeah, they were wearing that Puma template. I think yeah. we've we've learned that that don't wear the 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 Puma uh, template, but we've also learned an important lesson from that IX win is that you should register your players if you sign them. That's what <laughs> I learned from this game. Sebastian Aller, as you said, Ryan scoring the four goals. IX forgot to register him last season, so he was not involved in the European campaign when he moved in. I think January, but they did register him this time, and he gets the four goals. So well done to him. Well done to IX for remembering to include him in the squad. A win for bureaucracy, Taylor. Very much so. Um, yeah. Group, group G. Corporations um, and bureaucracy. Winning everything. <laughs> Woo! What a fun chat. Um, group G, uh, <laughs> probably maybe not too much to shout about in Group G. Uh, all draws. Sevilla 1-1 draw with Ebi Salzburg. And Ligue 1 champs Lille with future Bundesliga champs Wolfsburg. A nil-nil there. Um, Wolfsburg's uh, first non-win of the season, if memory serves me correct. Group H, meanwhile, wins for Juve and Chelsea. Chelsea with a 1-0 win over Zenit with, of course, Romelu Lukaku getting the goal there. And uh, Juve, a 3-0 win at Malmo. Three goals in the first half. Juve back to winning ways. But I'd like to finish, gents, if that's okay, on Group D. Couple of interesting games here. Firstly, Graham, Sheriff, as you mentioned there, playing Shakhtar Donetsk. Sheriff, the Moldovan champs, who we all said would prosper completely completely in this competition in our uh, preview of this competition. They now top Group D with a 2-0 win over Shakhtar Dinex. And did you see that coming, Graham, honestly? Uh, no, I will say. I didn't see Sheriff making the, the group stages in, in the first place so that for them to get a, a victory. The, the, the finish for this, the first goal by Traore, by the way, is incredible. I mean, yes, the, the goalkeeper might have been stronger. He's a little bit weak in, around the wrists trying to palm that ball away. But the way Traore manages to get his foot so high and then get a pretty powerful volley on goal from slightly behind him, that, that was one of the most notable things of, of this match for me. So I will be, look, I'm not going to say that when, uh, City and PSG are, PSG are playing each other in the next, in the next match day that I'm going to be watching Sheriff's next match, but I will look out for the result after, after this, after this, uh, after this result just to see if, they can get through to the last 16. Seems unlikely, but maybe they can get into the Europa League. Who knows? Who knows? And yeah, by the way, that first goal, as you mentioned, Graham, Adama Troyore, who got the goal, and Cristiano with the assist. And also, not that one, and not that one for uh, Sheriff, <laughs> <laughs> just for reference there. The other game in Group D, gents, uh, Inter Milan against Real Madrid. And here in Italy, this one was really promoted quite a lot. Um, uh, this this game was on Amazon Prime because uh, Amazon Prime have 16 games a year, I've learned, uh, for, for the coverage here. Media set, get the rest of them. So there's a lot of promo for this one. 
Huh. Interesting game. Uh, Joe, did you catch any of this one? Real Madrid getting the 1-0 win with the 88th uh, minute winner from Rodrigo. Real Madrid very lucky to get three points. Did you get this one, Joe? I did not. I could spew some nonsense about what I didn't see, but instead I might turn it over <laughs> to somebody else. Don't worry, Joe. I've got this because I have the expert analysis to say that I fell asleep three times in the first half of this game. <laughs> yeah. It was one of those games. It was one of those games. Maybe it's not a lot. I to managed say to stay awake. Well done, Graham. Well done to you. The one, the one big note Thank I you. have from this game is that um, Martin Tyler said of one of Jekko's shot, maybe he hit that too well. Martin Tyler actually used that in the commentary. I thought that was wonderful. Well done, Martin Tyler. What? For that <laughs> what was the context? I'm confused. <laughs> like it was one of those. He hit uh, it too Jekko hard. Had- he had a shot that was like on the half volley and the keeper it, um, um, got a hand to it. And it was one of those where he literally said, if anything, he's hit that too well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, not a, it's not I don't understand any part of that. Does anyone have <laughs> any idea what that means? I think, I think the idea is, you know, if, if, if you, maybe you'd, you'd scuffed it or it might have gone either side of the goalkeeper or, or something like that. Whereas if you just strike it straight at the goalkeeper, it's maybe, it's a little bit easier. But it's, it's a strange thing to say. I've always thought it's a strange thing to say because if you, you, it's not really down to the strike. It's more down to the direction. If you strike it that well into the top corner, then it's going to be a goal and you've not struck it too well. You've struck it perfectly. So yeah, it's a little bit of a weird one. I kind of like it though. You you've talked me into thinking it's a pretty clever way of explaining that. Like, yeah, you, you hit the ball exactly where the goalkeeper thought the ball was going to go. So in some ways, it hits too, it's hit too well. Okay, I'm back in. I'm back on board. If anything, Graham's explained that too well. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this game was also fun again from a Man United perspective. This time, not an American perspective, to see Eduardo Camavinga and just contemplate what could have been because. That goal, while this game wasn't that exciting, that goal is very pretty, and it's a good finish uh, from Rodrigo, but it's a great sort of first-time assist from Kamavinga, who was a substitute in this one, coming out on the 80th minute for Luka Modric. That's a ball I would expect from Luka Modric. Um, I don't know what I would have expected from Kamavinga, but now I will expect that, because to take that first time and play it in the way he did, I thought was very good awareness, very good skill, and obviously a very good win for Madrid as well. Indeed. Very, very exciting player, Camavingris as well, Taylor. I completely agree with that. His combination play with Valverde for that goal and uh, in other moments in this game, fantastic stuff. Real Madrid stealing a win there in the Champions League, but they are not top of Group D. Sheriff Tiraspol, the mighty Sheriff Tiraspol, the Sheriffs are top of Group D. Gents, I think that just about rounds up our Champions League review. That was an exhausting one, but a lot of fun games. Long may this trend continue in this group stage. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your contrips. Uh, right back at you, my friend, even if your countrymen did not contribute to managing in the Champions League. Just wanted to drive that one home one more time. Oh, I'll take that. That's absolutely fine. Graham Rothman, any of your countrymen <laughs> in this? Don't think so. Any any Scots? Uh, no. I, well, I mean, Jack Hendry had uh, Kylian Mbappe and Neymar and Messi in his back pocket, so I'm gonna I'm gonna claim that one. That that was uh, Scotland have won this round of the Champions League. So there you go. They have indeed. And Joe Lowry, thank you very much, sir, for your contributions. Also. Oh, you got it, Ryan. Listener, we'll be back soon. For now, bye. 